I next met with Dr. Sarah Hurwitz, and to begin, she presented a young woman in her practice whose tumor's HER2 status proved difficult to assess. So this is a young woman who's in her 30s, and we have a multidisciplinary tumor clinic, and I saw her the first week she was diagnosed, along with the surgeon and radiation oncologist, her core biopsy, and so this was a very strongly ER and PR positive tumor, and the KI-67 was like 30%, and it was a high-grade tumor. It was like an 8 out of 9 on the Bloom-Richardson scarf scale. And the HER2 was 2 plus by IHC, and the HER2 by FISH was indeterminate. And so she was borderline. Borderline, okay. And so we decided, you know, that, look, this is a 2 plus tumor. We can't really tell what the HER2 biology is. Should we give her neoadjuvant therapy because we have newly FDA approved options for her that include pertuzumab? Should we retest this or should we just send her to surgery and retest that sample? And so ultimately it was a 2.1 centimeter tumor. We decided to send her to surgery. She underwent the surgery and lymph nodes were negative. It was 2.3 centimeters at the time of surgery. And this time again, HER2 was 2 plus. And now the fish was 2.08 and the copy number was 7.4. So she met the new guidelines for being HER2 amplified. And I sat there scratching my head with her. Now, certainly something is high risk about this tumor. The tumor is high grade. It has a high KI-67. There was some lymphovascular invasion, and she's a woman who's under 40. So there are high risk features, and it's not a question of whether or not she would benefit from chemotherapy. In my practice, when I see cases where one says, yes, it's HER2 driven, and the other test says, no, it's not, I tend to treat as though it's HER2 driven because I would hate to deprive her of HER2 targeted therapy in case part of the tumor is actually HER2 driven. And, you know, these biphenotypic or tumor heterogeneity. We haven't studied this very well. We don't know what percentage of tumors are truly heterogeneous for HER2. There's been some studies, but this hasn't been broadly studied. Some experts would indicate somewhere between 7 and 15% are heterogeneous and sort of explain the different test results we're getting. And so I am going to be treating her. So you're going to give her chemo and trastuzumab? Yes. So how about if I tell you that as I was listening to that case, I was thinking of one very, very similar to it. And again, I have so many cases flying around in my head that get presented at conferences. And the community doctor ordered an type, and mm-hmm. it was low. Right. And she actually didn't even give her chemo or trastuzumab. Any thoughts? Yeah, I don't use Oncotype to double-check my HER2. There was an article in JCO some point last year, toward the end of 2013, that looked at the sensitivity or specificity of HER2 testing using Oncotype. And the end result of that study was that Oncotype was too insensitive. So it was missing an unacceptably high number of patients whose tumors were HER2 positive by either IHC or FISH testing. So let me flip it back over, because actually this case ties into a bunch of things I wanted to ask you about. But if this exact same woman 
had a clear-cut ER-positive, absolutely HER2-negative tumor, what do you think you would have done? So it was 3 centimeters, node-negative, right? So 2.3 centimeters, yeah, okay, and it was lymph node-negative. Mm-hmm. Okay, so same lady okay. who's clearly HER2-negative, how would you have thought it through? The grade of the tumor, the lymphovascular invasion, and the KI-67 combined with her age make me concerned that she's at relatively high risk for a recurrence and that chemotherapy might actually benefit her. So I might do an Oncotype DX test on her to confirm sort of in a fancy way what my pathologist has said about her tumor, and I would strongly consider adjuvant chemotherapy. Interesting. So maybe we can continue on in terms of this kind of scenario. How old did you say she was? She's 38. So I want to ask you about how you're thinking or you think you will be thinking about the hormonal therapy. This lady's premenopausal, I assume. Yes. In this lady. But first, I don't know if it was an issue with her, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the issue of fertility. Yes. Uh, We've seen some interesting information that's come out recently about that. Did this lady have any issues in terms of wanting future children? This particular patient had two children, a boy and a girl, and she was happy to be done. But another patient that I saw last week, who's 28, really wants to preserve fertility. She has just married in the last year, and they were planning on having their children very shortly and was devastated by a new diagnosis of actually triple negative breast cancer. Hmm. And what stage of disease does she have? Clinically, she is a stage 2 so she's already had her surgery? No, she's going to surgery next week, but it looks on imaging to be about 2.8 centimeters. Clinically, she's lymph node negative, and so she's going to be having her lumpectomy next week, and we'll know the final staging. But I've already met with her, and she's aware that chemotherapy is in her future. And have you discussed or has she brought up the issue of ovarian oocyte preservation or any other strategies We've seen, I don't know if it's relevant to her or not, the issue of using LHR agonist during chemotherapy. What are you thinking about for her? Yeah, so she was referred immediately to a fertility specialist and met with him last week as well. And she, having selected a partner, is going to do embryo preservation because she's married. So it's very important to her. And it's interesting because at ASCO this year, The POEM study was presented, which I believe is the very first randomized prospective study looking at LHRH antagonists and preserving fertility. So it was a small study. There are only 218 patients enrolled in this study, and they allowed patients with stage 1 to stage 3A breast cancer. And the patients had to have ERPR negative cancer, which is an important point to be aware of. And they randomly assigned patients to receive gasarilin starting at least one week prior to chemo and continuing until about two weeks from their last chemo. And they were looking at the rate of primary ovarian failure at two years as the primary endpoint and looking at other things such as ovarian dysfunction and pregnancies achieved as secondary endpoints. 
roughly two-thirds of the patients in this study were under the age of 40. So it was really addressing these very young women who are trying to preserve fertility. And interestingly showed for the first time that ovarian failure at two years was significantly reduced. So it's 22% in the women who received chemotherapy without gasarolin and 8% in the women who did. They also had more pregnancies achieved, almost a doubling in the number of pregnancies achieved, 11% in standard chemo versus 21% in the patients who received gasarolin. And then as a sort of exploratory endpoint, they looked at disease-free survival. And in this study, the patients who received gasarolin had an improved disease-free survival, 89% versus 78%. So those data are encouraging about the safety of doing this. And I think very exciting for young women who are dealing with a rather horrendous situation. Is this a strategy you've used? And did seeing this data change your thinking about it? Yes, because before this data came out, we really had no data that this worked. In fact, our infertility experts at UCLA told me, you know, it's really not going to help the patient to use gasarolin. So, you know, why do it? You're just going to give them hot flashes. And it has changed practice for me because now in my young patients, I am presenting these data to them, and we will be using it in this particular patient I just told you about. Hmm, interesting. What about the patient who has an ER-positive tumor once they have children? We have no data there. And, you know, I don't have a real biological reason to say that you shouldn't do that. We treat these tumors with hormonally targeted therapy. The only data that would indicate you shouldn't use chemotherapy and hormonal intervention at the same time is a much older study. So I guess the other issue is that you're pretty much going to have to stop hormonal therapy at the point that the woman decides they want to conceive, correct? Yes, exactly. And so again, this is another long discussion, length of therapy. A year or two ago, I would tell my very young women, look, let's try and if you're young enough, if the patient is young enough in her 20s, let's try and get you through five years of tamoxifen and then have you try and conceive. Now we have data from the Atlas and Adams study suggesting 10 years of tamoxifen is going to improve their long-term survival. So how do we present this data to patients and allow them to live their life as well? Another complexity is what about a 35-year-old woman whose ovarian function just naturally is going to decline and waiting five or 10 years for them to conceive is probably too long. And so these are the tough discussions because we can't rely on sort of the comfort of data. We're not good enough at knowing exactly who's going to recur and who's highest risk and who's not. So you have very long, somewhat existential talks with patients about their goals and their life and how they would feel if a recurrence came back. Would they regret stopping tamoxifen earlier versus later and bringing their husbands or partners into the discussion as well? And there's usually lots of tears shed in these sorts of discussions, but they're quite important to have. So this also starts to segue into something else that I was going to ask you about, and really it's completely tied in, 
and that is sort of hormonal therapy for younger women in general. You mentioned the issue about extending tamoxifen for 10 years or more, which has been out there now for a year and a half, I guess. But the other thing that came on our radar just recently at the ASCO meeting was the issue of ovarian suppression and an AI. Yes. And maybe you can talk about the plenary presentation and the simultaneous paper that came out looking at this question and what do you think it means to take care of patients? Yes, yes. So this, again, is sort of fascinating data and the first time we had a good-sized study to reflect on. This was a combined or a joint analysis of the text and soft studies. These are two studies that were both aimed to look at younger premenopausal women with hormone receptor positive cancer. The text study was a two-arm study looking at tamoxifen plus a GnRH analog called triptorelin versus exemestane plus the ovarian suppression. And the soft study was a three-arm study with the same two arms, but a third arm was tamoxifen alone. So soft is going to be the first study that addresses whether adding ovarian suppression to tamoxifen is beneficial. So these studies were going along rather concurrently. I believe the only real difference between the two is that the text study allowed adjuvant chemotherapy. I don't think that the soft study did. And so they were going along and looked at their data somewhere uh, around 2010 or 11 and noticed that their event rate was relatively slow. And so it's going to take a long time to get an answer about which arm is beneficial. So the two studies came together and decided to join their two similar arms to do a joint analysis, which I think is a very ethical and good thing to do because it gets us answers a little faster. It allowed them to power the study up, but it did bring into it the complexity of bringing two different studies together and the different patient populations. The minority of patients in this study had HER2-positive disease, so that's an important point because I'm not really sure how to translate this data in the HER2-positive setting. Only about 12% of the overall study was HER2-positive. Combined together, there were over 4,600 patients in this analysis. And their five-year disease-free survival showed that the exemestane arm actually was better. The hazard ratio was about 072 And the disease-free survival in absolute numbers at five years was 91% for the patients who received the ovarian suppression and exemestane compared to about 87% for tamoxifen and ovarian suppression. So about a 4% absolute improvement. No difference in overall survival, as you'd expect with disease-free survivals that high. It'd be hard to detect a difference in overall survival There was a poster presented at ASCO that did a quality of life analysis. I can't remember how many patients were involved in the quality of life patient reported outcomes, but apparently the bottom line was that the two arms were similar in terms of quality of life, which I think is very important to patients. Yeah, I was curious about that. Do you think that your clinical experience mirrors that? No. (laughs) That's why I was so, so surprised because the musculoskeletal side effects from aromatase inhibitors are tremendously difficult for patients. There have been some studies that have come out now, I think at least two, looking at exercise and how it impacts that musculoskeletal pain syndrome. And it appears that the most active patients who exercise the most 
one of the studies was like 150 minutes a week, had significant reductions in their pain scores. So it may be that we're seeing a lot more obesity. I think the BMI average is around 28 now in the U.S., a lot more sedentary women and men right now. And so that may be relating to the inflammation pathway and this side effect. But needless to say, tamoxifen, in my experience, is much better tolerated by patients. So what are you doing in your practice? Well, there is one little caveat that no one really talked about that I heard, and that is there was a poster presented of this data. It was a subset of 90 patients to look at the percentage of patients who had ovarian function breakthrough while on exemestane. And in those 90 patients out of 4,690 patients in the overall study, so certainly a tiny subset analysis, in those 90 patients, up to 25% of women had estradiol levels that were high during treatment with the ovarian suppression. So the question is, in those individual patients, are we really helping them? Are they doing better with exemestane than with tamoxifen? And how should we be following our young patients, our women in their 20s and 30s, really having good ovarian suppression? Is that necessary for the aromatase inhibitor to work? So when I talk to patients who are young and premenopausal, in addition to presenting them with the ATLAS and ADAM studies, I now am presenting them with this combined analysis. And I'm talking to them about the fact that, you know, the data are very encouraging and it is mirroring sort of the absolute risk reduction we're seeing in postmenopausal women. But the fact that I think we should be following estradiol levels intermittently while they are on this, at least in the first year. And so I've talked to about 20 patients since ASCO about this study and only two have taken me up on the offer to switch. What about the alternative of laparoscopic removal of the ovaries? First of all, in the long run, do you think it offers just, I don't know, more convenience slash quality of life from that point of view? And, you know, not talking about high risk or BRCA situation, how often do patients want to go that route? Out of the 20 patients I talked to, only one patient would consider it. Hmm. And I think the patients that I've talked to, all of them, by the way, with the exception of one, was already taking tamoxifen and tolerating it reasonably well. And it's kind of the devil they know. <laughs> and right. so they're very, very frightened of changing to a new therapy. All you have to do is go on Google or some websites and find blogs that are like, you know, volumes and volumes about the horrendous side effects patients are experiencing because the patients who are having a really difficult time on drugs are the ones up in the middle of the night writing blogs about it. So patients are very fearful of changing. They're also afraid of menopause. Even their husbands, I had a patient and her husband in yesterday, and you know she had eight lymph nodes positive after chemotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting, strongly, strongly ERPR positive, HER2 negative, KI67 is like 25%. She's in her 40s. Actually, she's like 47 years old, so it's not going to be very long until she goes into menopause. They understand that hormones are sort of driving this tumor. And the husband looked at me and said, 
well, what's going to happen to her if we turn off her ovaries? You know, is she going to become a man? Is she going wow. <laughs> to grow hair on her chest? You know, is it not really understanding that, you know, I, I had to get very basic with him and say, look, the hormones are the enemy here from what we know. This is what we're trying to block. So it differs. Some patients are very, very willing to be aggressive and have their ovaries removed and do anything to try and reduce their risk of breast cancer coming back. And other women are very risk averse and very, very stressed about quality of life impacts. You mentioned that it kind of looks, you know, indirectly comparison-wise, that the benefits of this strategy are kind of similar to what's seen in people who start out postmenopausal AI versus tamoxifen. What about going down into the DCIS and high-risk situation? Do we have data that you also see this kind of incremental slight benefit of the strategy of ovarian suppression and an AI? Yeah, so we really only had tamoxifen, that study from the 90s for so long, the NSABP study, showing that in DCIS, the risk goes from, what, 13% down to 8%. So a nice 40% relative risk reduction for patients who have lumpectomy and radiation for DCIS And then we had the large study looking at exemestane in women at high risk. And, you know, that study showing 65% relative risk reduction. And that included patients who had DCIS who'd had a mastectomy of one breast, unilateral mastectomy. So do you use AIs instead of tamoxifen in postmenopausal women with DCIS? I am. I discussed the fact that the AI study... Only 4% of the patients who were enrolled in that study were actually patients with DCIS who'd undergone mastectomy. So if I'm looking at a patient across the table from me who's had a lumpectomy, I explain that, you know, biologically, the AI is probably going to provide more protection based on what we know, but I also want them to be aware that the study wasn't designed for addressing the same question that the NSABP study was designed to do. I think AIs are probably better if we have our blinders on and all we care about is the end point of avoiding cancer again. My experience is that probably 20% or more of my patients have to switch from one AI to the other to try and improve their quality of life or will ultimately switch to tamoxifen just because of tolerability issues. If you see that a patient is sort of passing through your practice and You see that they have either, let's say, LCIS or atypical hyperplasia. Will you either think about or refer them for consideration of chemo prevention or bring it up to them? Yes, I think it's appropriate to bring it up for them. And I definitely do. And in that situation, if they're postmenopausal, I talk to them about exemestane. I also discuss tamoxifen. And sometimes patients will want to have a bone density test to be reassured that they're not going to be harming themselves by doing uh, medicine like this to prevent uh, cancer. But I think that it's pretty profound, the benefits we see in terms of reducing a risk of having a breast cancer. I don't know. It's a discussion to have that is important for patients, but quality of life invariably comes into the discussion. There is one other issue I wanted to ask you that I thought would tie in well with a surgical audience. And actually, it kind of comes out of a case. Again, I remember hearing about this a case about three months ago that I thought was very interesting, sort of cutting edge kind of thing. But it gets into the issue of surgery in metastatic disease. 
And this case that we had in one of our conferences was a patient who presented initially with, I think it was about a three centimeter ER negative, HER2 positive. Actually, it might have been bigger. It might have been four because they were thinking about neoadjuvant therapy, uh, breast cancer, and gets a workup and has a single, apparently, liver met. And in fact, ends up getting biopsied and it's a liver met. So the doc was going to give the patient you know, trastuzumab, pertuzumab, and uh, taxane anyhow for neoadjuvant therapy. So the patient was treated that way, and they just sort of figure, well, let's see what happens. And the patient had a CR in the breast, clinically and imaging-wise, and in the liver. Mm-hmm. So I guess my email question to you is, what would you be thinking about in a patient like this? Is cure an objective? I think it's something that we're going to see more data on in the coming years, but I think that there are patients who are cured. I had a similar patient who came to me, though she was not de novo metastatic. She had a recurrence after adjuvant anthracycline followed by trastuzumab and came to me with a liver full of metastases, and I treated her with TCH in the metastatic setting, and she had a complete response, and six years later, it's never come back, and we're wondering what we should do with trastuzumab, continue or stop. So for this particular patient that you just presented, I would think about doing a lumpectomy on the breast in the area that was clipped. I wouldn't really want to go forward with a mastectomy or full axillary lymph node dissection, but I think a lumpectomy and sentinel lymph node biopsy just to sort of see what the residual disease is, is probably very low risk if the patient is otherwise very healthy and might help. Now, do we have data to support that? No. We had a huge retrospective analysis at one point looking at patients who had their breast tumor removed who had metastatic disease, suggesting a survival benefit. But even if you statistically adjust analyses like that, they've got to be fraught with selection bias. And then there was an Indian study presented, what, a year and a half ago or so, which was actually a prospective study, I think the first prospective study to look at whether removing the breast tumor in metastatic disease is beneficial. And their answer was no, that it didn't improve survival or outcomes. But the problem with all of these studies is that they're mixed patient populations, that they're not all HER2 positive or all triple negative or all hormonally driven. And in our practices, I think we're seeing a proportion of patients that are having long-term durable remissions with HER2 positive disease. We are very good at treating this cancer, and she could live many, many years, even without a recurrence. Adam Brusky, I think, presented data from Register looking at the survival for patients with HER2 positive de novo metastatic breast cancer. It's a lot longer than those patients who present with recurrent HER2-positive breast cancer. And I think you're going to see more data coming out about that in the near future at San Antonio as well. I would estimate in my own practice that maybe 10% of patients are long-term durable remissions with first-line HER2-based therapy. So I would be more aggressive in this particular patient. I wouldn't resect where the liver met was. But I would be more aggressive with her based on medical intuition and what we know rather than based on actual data. How about RFA or some other kind of local procedure to the liver? 
If she felt strongly about it and there was some residual disease in the liver, I would support it. But this particular patient had a CR in the liver from what you said, so I would leave it alone. Right. Well, of course, that was clinical or imaging CR. Right, right. I just want to close and ask you if you might want to pick out one case that you've seen recently that you think would be interesting for a surgeon to hear about. You can take a minute if you want to think about it. Yeah, so I'm going to have to wrap up with what we haven't talked about, which is neoadjuvant, because I just had this patient yesterday who's a 34-year-old woman with an ERPR negative, HER2 positive breast cancer. It was inflammatory when she came to me. She found it when she was nursing her one-year-old, and she and her husband came to us about six, seven months ago. And it was right around, actually, just after the FDA had approved neoadjuvant trastuzumab and pertuzumab. And so we went through the data and we talked about the role of chemo and radiation and the fact she'd need a mastectomy because it was clearly involving the skin and lymph nodes were matted. And we put her on docetaxel, carboplatin, trastuzumab, pertuzumab, because we wanted to give her the most number of cycles of dual HER2-targeted therapy combined with chemo. And that regimen, which is FDA-approved, gives her six cycles as opposed to the other approved regimens where it's only three or four. So we started that treatment, and she had a good clinical response, had horrendous diarrhea, just awful side effects, because when you hit HER2 with pertuzumab, pertuzumab also blocks the heterodimerization of HER1 or EGFR with HER2. So you're getting a little off-target effect of blocking HER1, and not all clinicians are aware, but you see more diarrhea in patients, so you have to warn your patients about them and have them prepped with Imodium, or they'll end up in the hospital sometimes with dehydration. At any rate, we worked with the gastro... How do you know it's the pertuzumab and not the docetaxel? It could be, but I've given a lot of TCH, and I haven't seen the hmm. amount of diarrhea that I'm seeing with TCHP. Interesting. Interesting. So we're seeing more of that and more febrile neutropenia. So we're actually prophylaxing with GCSF up front in our patients, and wow. we're warning them about the risk of diarrhea as well. Huh. So what happened to this lady? So she got all six cycles in, thankfully, with the help of a very, very willing gastroenterologist who worked closely with me. And she went to surgery last week, and her pathology came out yesterday. And the reason it's so close in my mind is because it was a complete pathologic response. I mean, they saw you know, some fibrosis and stromal changes in the breast. They could see that the breast had not been normal, but there wasn't one cancer cell in the breast. She had a mastectomy. And they took out 14 lymph nodes, and they saw that three, again, had lots of changes associated with prior cancer being there, but there was not one cancer cell. So I went back and looked at the Trifena data with the TCHP arm, And I looked at the ERPR negative subset in 84% of patients who had ERPR negative HER2 positive breast cancer that got TCHP had a PATH CR. So it's an exciting time in the neoadjuvant realm. And I work really closely with my surgeons now and say, look, if they're two centimeter tumors, you could probably take them to lumpectomy and do just fine. And I can give them trastuzumab post-op. But we have a unique opportunity right now to be treating these patients and getting prognostic information about their tumors and giving them a good opportunity at a PATH-CR 
if you send them to me, you know, now, and then I'll send them back to you for surgery. But it's a different way of thinking for a lot of surgeons.